0: Well, good morning, fellowship. Welcome into our 930 service. Hey, would you stand with us as we prepare our hearts to worship God this morning? And let's just affirm this truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life.
1: I believe you are the way, the truth. and doubts they can all come to cause they can't stay long
2: a seat this morning. Well good morning fellowship. Hey how about them hogs? That's right. Hey my name's Caleb Freeman. I'm a student pastor here on our Rogers campus. If you're new or you're looking to get plugged in there's going to be some QR codes up on the screen. Go ahead and scan those because we want to help get you plugged in. We want you to know you belong here And just filling out this form gives us some contact information so we can get a hold of you. If you don't want to do that, you can talk to somebody in the back. But all the QR codes that we're about to put up will take you to the same place and enable you to see all the things we're talking about. Hey, this past weekend, our student ministry got to take 11th and 12th graders to New Life Ranch in Siloam Springs for our fall retreat. And it was unbelievable. It was an incredible weekend, so much fun. Students were craving it. I had missed it since we didn't get to go last year. But it wasn't just a weekend of fun. It was a weekend of life change and spiritual growth. Let me, let me give you a few stories. We actually had a student show up saying, hey, I, I've only met hypocritical Christians. I've never actually seen a believer who lives what they preach. And by the end of the weekend, this student was saying, I wanna know more about what it means to follow Jesus because this is the first time I've seen somebody actually live out what they preach. And hearing that, I get excited for the student, but I also am so proud of the students that that person was interacting with, that they would live gospel-oriented, Christ-centered lives that display the truth of Jesus. We also had a student come out and be baptized by her father this weekend, getting to profess in front of her peers. that She wants to follow after Jesus all the days of her life, and she'll actively own her spiritual walk. I think one of the coolest stories from the weekend, we had someone come out, and begin to celebrate with their small group that they were gonna be adopted by the family that they've been living with. It's an unbelievable thing to celebrate adoption. And yet by the end of the weekend, they were celebrating their second adoption into the family of God as they professed faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so to all of you, I I just wanna say thanks. Because we've asked so many of you to pray for this retreat, pray for the time with students. And I believe the Lord answered your prayers. Thank you. We want to raise students into godly young men and women together, and partnering with you all is a joy. Hey, for those of you who are seriously dating or engaged, I would love for you to check out our Merge Ministries. This is an awesome opportunity to begin to set up your soon-to-be marriage on some biblical foundations or with a healthy basis. And so this is a small group course that takes place over a couple weeks. Signups are live until the 22nd, but my hope is that here at Fellowship, we would invest just, in much, just as much in our marriages as we would our wedding. And I think this course, this premarital setting is a way to do just that. So if you're seriously dating, you're engaged, you're looking for some type of premarital, check out our Merge Ministries. And to all of you, I would encourage you to begin to look into all of our ministries because this is actually community kickoff week. I know most of you woke up and said, the Chiefs play today, that's what I'm excited about. You should be excited that your community group starts this week. And so all of our adult community ministries are beginning this week. It's not too late to sign up for any of them. Again, you can scan this QR code or find somebody in the back. We would love to help you get plugged in. Hey, one more thing. Last week, we actually opened up a a disaster relief portal on our website. Again, you can find it by scanning this QR code. And, And throughout the week, we sent donations directly to those affected by Ida in Louisiana. In fact, we're partnering with a church and a pastor in Louisiana. And I wanna say thank you for your generosity. You guys have raised over $18,000 and every dollar goes directly to families in crisis. The Lord absolutely works in the midst of hardship and I think it's really evident that the Lord is working through your generosity. So thank you. Before we begin to worship this morning, I'd love to, ask you all to pray, and so I'm gonna ask you guys to pray together, either with the person you came with, maybe somebody next to you or by yourself, but I'd ask that you'd pray for two things. One, for those affected by Ida, that the Lord would work and the lives bring peace and restoration to those affected by it, and two, on this September 12th morning, let's take a moment and remember the lives lost in September 11th, and let's pray for those grieving the loss of September 11th. Let's pray for our country and the unity that's so desperately needed. Would you take a moment, would you pray for those affected by Ida and those affected by 9-11 and our country?
0: invite you to stand this morning as we get to worship God Almighty this morning. And this song we're about to sing just affirms a few doctrines that we affirm as a church, where we believe in God the Father, believe in Christ the Son. So this is an opportunity to proclaim these beliefs as a group this morning. Would you sing this with me?
1: Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one. God Almighty And through your Holy Spirit Conceiving Christ the Son Jesus our Savior I believe I believe in God our Father I believe in Christ the Son I believe in the Holy Spirit Our God is three in one I believe in the resurrection That we will rise again Suffered and crucified. It's so a true forgiveness season. I believe Cause I I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church.
0: Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Kyle Jackson and I'm one of the worship pastors here, Fellowship Rogers. And uh, one of my favorite parts of my job is getting to work with my team and work with our teaching team to craft a service each Sunday morning and worship experiences even throughout the week sometimes. And in that, we are tasked with this special job of choosing the songs that we sing as a church. And our goal with that is to choose songs that are doctrinally sound, theologically sound, but also that are creative and inspire and point to the beauty of Jesus. So this morning, I found this quote as I was reading through a blog this week, and I loved it. I think it summed up exactly what we get to do as worship pastors here, and even as worshipers here at Fellowship. And it says, when poetry and theology meet, it helps us understand the height depth of Christ's love for us more fully. And that was Tyler Van Haltren from the Gospel Coalition blog. And this next song that we're going to sing, I believe this song is a perfect mixture of this beautiful poetic language that meets with deep, rich theology. So that's my encouragement for you this morning as you sing. I've even had someone say that they'd love to try to take notes through the worship set to try to figure out what we're doing as worship leaders to communicate the bigger theme or the bigger point of the day. So if you wanna practice that, I wanna encourage that. Also, just as you worship, just look for that beautiful mixture of poetry and theology as we see. we come before you just lifting that up as a prayer corporately, that we would be a church that longs to abide in you as we learn to decipher and learn how to properly and correctly study your holy word. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts this morning, Lord, uncallous what we may have come in with calluses on, Father. Spirit, would you, Move in our souls and our hearts to where we don't leave the room the same this morning, Father, but we leave changed, living for you and your gospel and who you've called us to be. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
3: Well, he was a young pastor who had a really tough assignment. He had been asked by his mentor to lead a church that was struggling greatly. This church was located in a city that was famous for its spirituality, but they didn't worship Jesus. They were worshipers of a pagan fertility goddess named Artemis. In fact, her temple was the city's most famous landmark. It dominated the town's landscape. It was actually the largest temple in the known world and a destination for thousands who would come to visit the city to participate in this cult worship every year. And their worship was grotesque. Temple prostitutes awaited worshipers who would do ungodly things in the name of their religion. Now, many people in the city were members of this cult And the rest were devoted to the temple and her goddess because of the revenue that the visiting worshipers brought to their city. So needless to say, sharing Christ and doing church in this city was very difficult. And not just because of the religious undercurrents. There were also adverse political, even philosophical conditions as well. This was a leading first century Roman city. And in the first century, the Roman Empire ruled the world. The Romans were not known as worshipers of the creator God. They were very proud of their, their wealth. They were proud of their architectural and educational and, and philosophical advancements. They weren't too interested in the scriptures or the so-called savior. In fact, if they worshiped anyone, it was their governmental leader, Caesar. Caesar. So this young pastor had a tough assignment in a tough culture. And to top it all off, there were even difficulties within his own church as well. Some of his fellow teachers had gone astray. They were teaching some strange things. Leadership structures and roles were becoming blurred. The scriptures were being misinterpreted. And regularly, people were not just leaving the church, they were leaving church the faith. It was a hard assignment, all uphill with no rest, routinely difficult, regularly problematic. So in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this adversity, this young pastor received a letter from his mentor. The letter contained both encouragement and instruction. The letter offered comfort and challenged challenge and it called upon this young pastor to fight the good fight of the faith and it offered him advice on how to handle these difficulties that were before him and guess what we have the letter open your bibles this morning to the book of 1 Timothy today we begin our fall teaching series on this New Testament letter. This book is one of three pastoral epistles in your New Testament. It is six chapters in length, and we will cover it in 10 weeks, beginning today and running all the way through to Thanksgiving. And we have produced a study guide to accompany you on the journey. So please bring these with you to church. The passage will be in there. There's room for you to take notes Um, In fact, today we are on page 14. Does anybody need a guide or a pen? I'm really serious when I say this. Raise your hands. Our ushers will bring one to you. You can pay on your way out. Don't forget, we've got cameras in the room. We need those $5. Seriously, raise your hands. The ushers will bring you a book right now or bring you a pen. Each week, the guide will not only give you a place to take notes, but also it will give you five devotional passages for your worship times and in your devotion times. There's also a set of discussion questions for you to use in a small group Bible study. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. <laughs> Baptists are loving that. Um, eyes closed all across the room. Um, you can use the discussion questions in your Bible study, your community group, your men's group, your women's group, or even at home with your family. Now this is going to be a little bit different. We're asking you to study this book of the Bible in a specific way. This is designed to be an inductive Bible study using our Bible study method from our training center class entitled Personal Bible Study. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, don't be afraid or intimidated. We are here to help. In fact, on page 10 in your study guide, there is a QR code. If you will scan that with your phone, it will take you to our First Timothy website. On the First Timothy website, there are training videos on how to do this Bible study. They're less than 10 minutes each. There's three of them. One on in, uh, the inductive uh, method stage of observation, one on interpretation, and one on application. So we would love for you to learn how to do this, and we will learn as we go. In fact, we'll do some inductive Bible study practice even in the sermon this morning. Lastly... On November 6th, we are going to have a First Timothy conference. We're going to host the new president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Mark Yarbrough. He's done extensive work in this book. We'll have a half day with him, and he'll correct everything that your teaching staff has taught you. So I want to invite you. I want to invite you personally. I want to invite your small group to go on the First Timothy journey with us Together, shall we? Before we begin, let's cover this thing in prayer. Father God, this is your word, so let it speak. Father, you inspired, you breathed these words into existence. So I pray that they would give us understanding, that they would convict us. Lord, as we just sang, may your voice be the loudest in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First Timothy chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of our God and Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to Timothy, a young pastor that was under his leadership. Paul was a first century evangelist and missionary and church planner. He held the title and the position of apostle. This was an authoritative position appointed by Jesus, endowed with authority to reveal truth concerning both doctrine and conduct in the church. Paul was the leader of the early church movement. He wasn't a self-appointed leader. He wasn't an elected leader. If you'll look at the text, he is an apostle. How? By the command of Jesus. And Paul wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith. Timothy is not Paul's biological son, but he is his spiritual son. Timothy had been Paul's disciple since he was a teenager, Timothy had traveled with Paul on various missionary journeys. He had observed and assisted the apostle in his ministry of evangelism and church planning. And as Timothy matured in his faith, he actually became Paul's co-laborer and assistant. And when he received this letter, Timothy was out on his own pastoring and leading this church. So after this brief introduction, the letter dives right in. This letter will bring us instruction for the church and a challenge for Timothy. And that's where it begins in verse three. It says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The location of Timothy's pastoral assignment is the ancient city of Ephesus. In the first century, Ephesus was the leading city of Asia and the third largest city, In the entire Roman Empire with a population estimated to be of 250,000 people or more. So this would have been a massive first century city. It is a major trade center located on the coast of the western tip of Asia. On the Aegean Sea and just opposite of Athens in Greece. And southwest of modern day Istanbul or ancient Constantinople. It is in modern day Turkey today. There's actually a major archaeological site there today that you can visit. It was a cultured city that embraced the arts and education and athletics. You can see in this picture it contained a massive library and a a large marketplace. A couple of key architectural features is that they had a huge public theater. This is actual footage from today. It seats 25,000 people. To give you a comparison, we have two big stadiums in Fayetteville. We had a cattle drive in one of them last night. In the winter, (laughs) in the winter, sorry, my throat's a little raspy. I had to yell at some people last night. In the winter, at the smaller stadium, that's our basketball arena, it holds 21,000 people. So just think about that. This is a huge architectural feature for this city. The second thing I wanted to note was the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is what Ephesus was known for. Worship center of the cult of Artemis. Featuring temple prostitutes who promised the favor of this goddess on the land and the womb of her worshipers. And people would come from near and far to worship Artemis in this magnificent temple structure. The temple was the largest building in the Greek world, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was around 100,000 square feet, surrounded by 127 columns, each being 60 feet in height. To give you some perspective, the worship center you sit in today is 13,000 square feet. So, the temple of Artemis was seven times the size of the room you sit in now. By the way, we are going to Ephesus in June of 2023, and you're invited. We'll be engaging in the Journeys of Paul tour aboard a clipper ship sailing from Istanbul in Turkey to Athens in Greece. We will stop in the ancient cities of Ephesus. And Patmos, where John penned the revelation, in Corinth, in Philippi, and ending in Athens. We're partnering with Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock. Mark Henry will be joining me and teaching that. If you'd like to go, I'd love to have you on the boat. How do you get involved? Well, just email us at JOP, that's Journeys of Paul, at FellowshipNWA.org. We'll add you to the interest list. We actually have an informational meeting this Thursday night at 6 p.m. in the training center chapel, so roll out and hear about our trip. Now, Paul visited Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and then he ended up staying there for over two years, teaching and discipling, and he planted a church before he left. The scriptures tell us that there would be resistance and adversity that would arise from within this church. In fact, before the apostle Paul departed from Ephesus, He predicted it. Look at Acts chapter 20. In verse 17, he calls for the elders from the church at Ephesus. He delivers his message in verse 28. He said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And this is exactly what happened. As Paul predicted, false teachers arose within the church at Ephesus and tried to confuse those who gathered there. Back to First Timothy chapter 1. Hear it again. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things provoke controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. So not only did young Timothy have to battle against the philosophies of the Roman culture while preaching Christ in a city obsessed with a pagan fertility goddess, Add to that, he had to correct false teachers that came from his own congregation. Paul commanded Timothy, stay there in Ephesus and shut down these teachers. He gave him the assignment to silence these errant leaders. And if you look at verse 3, it has some intensity to it. Paul urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus. Why did he have to urge him to stay? Well, option one might be because it was an important matter. But option two could be that Timothy didn't want to stay. He wanted to leave. Maybe because he wanted to return to the familiar, traveling with the apostle as his assistant. Or maybe things were so tough in this church, he wanted to resign. Remember, young pastor, tough assignment. Now, these verses describe both the false teachers and their teachings. These teachers were devoted not to the gospel, not to the apostolic doctrine, but to myths and endless genealogies. Instead of being devoted to the things of God, they wanted to have endless discussions on theories and fables. They wanted to major in myth as opposed to keeping the main thing the main thing. They preferred junk food over healthy spiritual nourishment. And instead of preaching Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, they wanted to draw genealogical tables and speculate on which Old Testament laws carry forward to the New Testament church. And look at the results. Their teaching led to controversy and speculation as opposed to the advancement of God's work. Instead of building strong faith in their listeners, these false teachings were empty of spiritual value and they only bred confusion and arguments. You know, you find people like this in the church. People who are more interested in speculation than in core beliefs or Christian living. They lurk in coffee shops. They troll the internet They send weird emails to their pastors and post weird links on their Facebook. They love to dominate discussions in the classroom or take over the small group Bible study. They'll even knock on your front door and hand you a pamphlet on a Saturday morning. They focus on obscure verses, prophetical theories, and what-if situations. They major in the minors. They like to stir up controversy more than foster genuine spiritual growth. And in the end, their efforts are futile. They frustrate and confuse those around them. And it leads to nowhere. Paul commands Timothy to silence these false teachers. And look at verse 5. Paul reveals his goal for the command. Love. The Apostle Paul calls for these teachers to be fired from their position. He commanded Timothy to terminate their service. Why? Love. Hmm. Love for God. Love for his word. Love for his bride, the church. Love for the listeners under their teaching. And love for the false teachers as well. Even though the command was severe, even though it would be harsh, it was a loving thing to do for all involved. Sometimes church leaders have to defend the faith. We have to guard sound doctrine. There are times when we have to make hard decisions, speak truth in love, and pull the plug on someone's leadership role. But you do so with the right motivation. Look at the end of verse five. Paul says, I do this out of a pure heart with a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let me stop right there. This is a grid to hold on to. If you ever feel like that you need to check someone, that you need to criticize someone's spirituality, that you need to confront someone's, content, run it through this grid. Is your goal love? That's the end goal. And what's your heart motivation? Do you have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? We try to start in the right place, motivation, and end in the right place, unity and love. Well, look at verses 6 and 7. These false teachers had actually abandoned These virtues, it says some have departed from these pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, seeking the goal of love and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. These teachers had lost their way. They had departed from the faith. They were just as confused on the inside as their words sounded on the outside. They had turned away from sound doctrine and towards meaningless talk. They were peddling worthless curiosities, teaching content that was void of any spiritual value. They wanted a teaching position more than they wanted to be sound teachers. They wanted to be in the spotlight more than they wanted God's approval. They wanted to be respected more than they wanted to be accurate. And Paul said in a leg-sweeping statement, they don't even know what they're talking about. Even though they teach with confidence, they do so out of ignorance. Remember this, that volume and word count are not indicators of accuracy. Just because someone says something confidently or eloquently, it does not mean that it's true. You know, I think over the last few months and maybe even the last few years, we've seen many people confidently affirm things that they may not know much about. And I'm not necessarily referencing spiritual things, although they've spiritualized them. People have confidently and loudly shared their opinions on all kinds of things, from politics and race to immigration and refugees to medicines and vaccines. And it's very possible that they absolutely have no idea what they're talking about, but they've Read a blog post or watched a YouTube video or seen a Netflix series and then voila, they've become experts who've done their research. Confidently sharing an opinion even though they severely lack proficiency to back up their claims. Apply that to the first century. You've got these false teachers, confident proclaimers. But unfortunately, their content was off base. Unfortunately, they didn't know what they were talking about. And Paul said, it's time to pull the plug. It's time to turn off the mic. It's time to shut them down. And since they wanted to be teachers of the law, Paul instructed them on how to use it properly. Look at verse 8. He said, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly we also know that the law is, not, is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted To the Apostle Paul. So there is a proper use of the law. It is designed to show sinners their need for a Savior. The law is more like a hammer than it is a ladder. The law is not designed to show righteous people how they can descend into heaven via good behaviors. The theologian Martin Luther put it this way the law is a mighty hammer designed to crush the self righteousness of man. The law is made to show our desperate need for Jesus. It is for the lawbreakers and the, the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful. And who is that? It's you. That's me. We are all sinners and lawbreakers in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? And how do we know that we're sinners? The law reveals it to The description of the lawbreakers and the ungodly gets more specific in verses 9 and 10, loosely following the second half of the Ten Commandments. I just want to note two of them. The first one is slave traders. Many have criticized the Bible for not condemning slavery, yet here we have one of the places it does. Slave traders listed among the ungodly. The second one I want to point out is that note that sexual immorality and practicing homosexuality are listed side by side in the list of sins with no escalation of severity. Many in the church today want to bring fire and judgment on homosexual sin while treading lightly and giving a free pass to heterosexual sin like premarital sex or extramarital sex or use of pornography. They want to protest homosexual behaviors while turning a blind eye to those who regularly practice heterosexual sin even in the church. Just note here, the Bible calls it all the same thing, sin. Ultimately, the point Paul is trying to make is that the law has a proper use. It reveals that we're sinners in desperate need of Jesus, which is good news for sinners like me and you. Okay. We've worked our way through our 11 verses, but do not get excited. We are far from being done. If you brought a snack, eat it now. If you have a five-hour energy, take that sucker down because we're gonna keep going and we're actually going to practice inductive Bible study. So I want you to take your your journal and, and I want you to get your pen ready and let's practice a little bit. Don't tune out. Inductive Bible study looks at a passage through three stages or three questions. The first is observation. We ask the question, what do I see? We simply write down some very obvious things in the passage as though we were an investigator on a a crime scene. Secondly, interpretation. What does it mean? Try to understand what it says. What, What does this mean, this word or this phrase or this sentence? And then lastly, application, how does it work? We try to find a way to live it out. So let's practice some observation. If you'll take your journal, there should be a bookmark in there. That bookmark is designed to be a tool that lists some things that you can observe in the passage. And the very first thing on the bookmark is the six fundamental questions that we'll ask of our passage. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? So let's ask him right now. Does this passage mention any people? Can we answer that question? Who is it about? It actually does. Look at the first word in the passage. It's a name. Look at on down in verse 2. There's another name. The whole passage is addressing a whole other group of people. So yeah, we've got some who's. Do we have a What? Does the passage say anything to those people? Is there a subject of this passage? I I think there is. You could just write that down. Does it give us a when? Now, let me know that not all questions are always answered by all passages. We actually don't have a specific date or time in this passage. But what about a where? I want to hear this one out loud. I got a coupon to the Golden Corral for the use. What... Where is this passage? Ephesus. That's right. You can go there with me in 2023. <laughs> what about the why? So if the who wrote to the who about the what, why did they write it? And the passage actually addresses that. What about the how? I don't see a how in this one. Let me show you the things I wrote down in my journal when I studied this passage several weeks ago. We've got some who's in there. we got Paul. We've got Timothy, and we've got false teachers. Also, it talks about God and Jesus. Always write those down. It makes you look really good at community group. You don't want to skip over Jesus, because there will be somebody there that says, but it does mention Jesus. Secondly, the what. The what. Paul wrote to Timothy to command him to silence these false teachers. We have a very strong what in this passage. We don't have a when, although if you're a Bible scholar, a Pauline scholar, you might say, okay, I kind of know where we're at after the third missionary journey and that kind of thing. But the passage doesn't say it, so skip that question. We've got the where, Ephesus, and we have the why. Why does Paul want to silence the false teachers? Because their words do not promote the work of God. It's meaningless speculation. Now, was that hard? Was that hard? So that's what you'll do each week. I actually do this for fun. This is my hobby. I love to do inductive Bible study, and I'm gonna do it along with you. I just make observations. You'll note there are other observations on the bookmark. I'll point out four. One is just, are there any key words? Key words kind of tell you what the passage is about. Are there any words that are repeated over and over? Is there a cause and effect relationship noted in the passage? Or are there any comparisons and contrasts? And in fact, all of these things are there. As I started thinking through what are the key words in this passage, I really got in there and thought about the description of the false teachers and teachings. In fact, I think the whole passage is about that. It seems like most of the words go back to either the false teachers or the false teachings. So I kind of noted that's the key term. I saw a little bit of repetition. Did y'all see any repetition in there? You see the the words repeated, doctrine a couple of times, teach or teaching a couple of times, command a couple of times, talk or talking a couple of times, and faith a couple of times. If you just were to put those together, you've got a picture of what the passage is about. This is about the content of the faith and what is being taught about it. Also, you see that God and Jesus are repeated four and three times. This is a very um, theistic-centered passage. There's a cause and effect relationship in the passage. Paul said, Timothy, stay at Ephesus so that, so that you may command certain people. That's a cause and effect relationship. But the last one I noted is the most important. This whole passage is a contrast. Paul is contrasting two things. Think with me. What is he contrasting here? He's contrasting false doctrine and sound doctrine. The results of this, as compared to this. And so, on my little 1st Timothy journal, to make my mentor Robert Cup so happy, guess what I made? A chart. A chart. So I started on this passage six weeks ago, and this is what I wrote, not in this kind of refined detail, but basically I just wrote down that there seems to be two different kinds of results from these teachings. There seems to be two different kinds of motivations from these teachers. These guys just want to be these, these in a teaching position and they, they're overconfident to where Paul's saying pure heart, clean conscience, sincere faith. And then look at the content, meaningless talk, empty speculation as opposed to the apostolic doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of Jesus. Boom. So now let's go to the next step. What does it mean? This is more difficult. This is why we have community group. This is where you get in there and you take your observations and you wrestle with them. I like to write down just things I see in the passage I don't understand. Like what was the myth? What was the the genealogical thing he was talking about? I still don't know, but I love to ask my community group leader to see if they're confused too. We get in there and wrestle with it and I'll just give you one statement from my interpretive deal to try to piece it together. I was trying to figure out what does God's truth lead to as opposed to false doctrine. Here's the statement. That God's truth purifies. It, it builds. It enriches. It unifies where false teaching or error putrefies. It rots. It confuses. It ends in meaninglessness. I just wrote that statement down and refined it some. Last stage, how does it work? How do we apply this particular passage? Let's keep it really simple. We teach, we pursue, we uphold sound doctrine. We curate the messengers we listen to and the messages we proclaim. We keep the main thing, the main thing. We avoid speculation. We abstain from spiritual meaningless talk, and if necessary, we mute someone's mic. We pull the plug because they're harming the flock. So here's the question I I asked. How do we know if something is harmful and should be shut down, or if something is just a matter of difference of opinion? And I want to give you a grid that has four different kinds of spiritual discussion for you to evaluate messages that come your way. Here's the first one. I would call the first one orthodoxy. So when we're talking about sound doctrine, this is a black and white issue. You're either right or you're wrong according to the faith. These are things that are very important, like the Trinity, or the deity of Christ, or that salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, or that there will be a a physical bodily return of Jesus or or the virgin birth. In these matters, you're either with us or you're against us, but hear me, church. Not everything is in this category. Hear me, church. Not everything is in this category. Not everything's black and white. There are actually some gray things in the faith where there is room for disagreement among Christians. Let's call them disputable matters. You're familiar with some of these, like frequency of communion. How many of you grew up in a church where you took communion or um, the sacrament every week? Raise your hand, okay? And how many of you took it monthly? How many of you took it quarterly? Quarterly? Not enemies and friends here. I mean, these are, there's room for disagreement. What about mode of baptism? Some sprinkle, some dunk. We hold them under. <laughs> Differences in style of worship. Some churches worship with a pipe organ. Some worship with a huge choir. Some worship with acapella. Some have face-melting guitar solos and smoke and laser lights. There's room for disparity. These aren't matters of orthodoxy or heresy. There's room for disagreement. Do you, do you see that? What about the version of the English Bible? We've got the NIV printed in your journal. Some of you might prefer the ESV or the NKJV or something like that. What about differences on sign gifts like speaking in tongues or the gift of healing or, or prophecy? Or how about God's providence and man's responsibility? The, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism or the method of discipleship, or the, the, the wording of the Lord's Prayer. Last week, you did the Lord's Prayer. And when we got to the part where it said either debtors or trespassers, I stopped talking and just tried to listen to see who the heretics were in the room. Now, is that an issue of being in the faith and out of the faith, whether you say forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses? No. It, it's an issue of dispute, intramural debate between churches, There's an old quote, they attribute the author to many, so I won't quote the author, that gives us guidance in disputable matters. In essentials, unity. So that's the Trinity. That's the deity of Christ. In non-essentials, liberty. You should know your position and why, but you give freedom to your neighbor to maybe have a different one. And in all things, charity. And that's where we've lost our way in 2021. We think if you don't agree with us, then you're a polar opposite of us and worthy of of our anger. There's another category. Let's call this one speculation. In the speculative category, we just don't know the answer. We don't. So to teach on it definitively as a matter of essential doctrine is to be out of bounds, like the date of Christ's return. Does anybody know the date of Christ's return? A lot of people have written books about it. Or what the mark of the beast is. People love to talk about that. Or what the role of Israel is in current or future affairs. Or whether something was an angelic um, appearance. Or whether Satan causes infertility or migraines. Or the loss of job or the earthquake, earthquake. Or dinosaurs. Everybody wants to talk about dinosaurs. Or what the nature will be of the tribulation or the rapture. But then there are people who are a lot weirder than that. I call them super speculators. These are people who are highly caffeinated. They um, get borderline weird at times. And they want to talk about aliens and microchips and numerology and QAnon and Deep State. And I unfriended all of you on Facebook. They want to name the Antichrist. And in these things, we just don't know. So to teach definitively and require it to be in the faith is where these speculators in the first century got out of bounds. Here's what I know. God's truth purifies, it builds, it enriches. Error rots. It putrefies. I'll give you two application questions for today. Messenger, who are you listening to? Are they accurate? Are they reliable? What's your source for wisdom? Does it conform to the gospel of Jesus? And then message. What are you proclaiming? What's coming from your life, your mouth, your keyboard? And is it Christ honoring? Fellowship, let's live this stuff out. Would you pray with me? So, Father, I pray that we would not just hear your word today, but we would obey it. Father, I pray for this church and for each of us in the room to conform to the sound doctrine as revealed in the authoritative word. Lord, I pray for the gospel of Jesus to thunder from Pleasant Grove Road. Clearly to all who come. And Lord, may our church honor you as we handle truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we affirm that truth in song?
1: Sweet.
3: at the end of the story. How did Timothy do in Ephesus handling these false teachers? We have another letter. This one from Jesus to the church at Ephesus found in Revelation chapter 2. It says, "To the angel of the church at Ephesus write: These are the words who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. Here's what happened. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that's the false teachers, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. May what was true of them be true of us today. Fellowship, I'm so glad you joined us today. If you need prayer, we've got the hills in our prayer room today. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.